Hello, and welcome to Leadership in Challenging Times on the Norquest College podcast. Hosted by Dr. Jody Abbott, President and CEO of Norquest College, and Lieutenant Colonel J.C. Wilson, 3rd Canadian Division Headquarters with the Canadian Army, this podcast will discuss challenging and difficult topics affecting community, business, and soldiers alike. The presenters may at times express their personal opinion or take a contrary position to expand the conversation, ranging from leadership to sensitive subjects to current affairs. The podcast will tackle issues in an open manner with an eye on identifying and expanding ideas from all sides of the discussion. Jody and Jeff will now start the podcast. Welcome everybody, podcast number 17. I can't believe it's 17. Welcome everyone, uh, Leadership in Challenging Times. Today we have with us Lauren Rubis, and Lauren is the Chief Culture and Transformation Officer at Norquest College. Maybe Lauren, you can give us a little bit of your background. I'm happy to, and uh, Jeff and Jody, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'd like to um, just kind of give you a little bit of outline of my history. So uh, right now, my whole life is dedicated towards advancing culture and leadership. I believe people have a right to work in great workplaces, and people have um, a right to work for great but not perfect leaders. And uh, they also have an obligation to contribute to that. So I have a chance to do that here in um, at Norquist in a very intentional way, but I've also, through my whole career, have had the ability to uh, be digging into that part of the of the world of of organizational life, and so it's a tremendous pleasure to kind of work at this. It's um, what I hold, what I do in life. It's my number one avocation, and so I appreciate a chance to expand on it, practice, and uh, here at Norquest to continue that practice, but also to talk about it with with the two of you. Lauren, in the work uh, that you have done over the years, and you know, I'm thinking prior to coming to Norquest College, you developed a methodology for examining and improving culture. Can you explain that a little bit to us? So I've had a chance to take a look at sort of the world of transformation that I've been in essentially throughout my entire career and to look back and sort of understand what are the elements that have really been uh, a key part of driving what I think an extraordinary adaptive culture. And so part of that way of putting a framework together is rooted in experience, a lot of experience, but also I've tried to support it by really bringing science and research that is out there. And so uh, I've introduced and continue to use this framework that I call the 10 elements of building extraordinary um, and adaptive cultures. And uh, I've also uh, added the sort of these phases that we go through and levers that you go through in order to execute on that particular framework. And those 10 elements, while they are, are uh, ubiquitous and, and I think can be applied to any organization, they kind of work like a recipe. The way you apply them uh, is unique and distinct to every institution based on the context of the organization. And so... These 10 elements um, uh, kind of are put in the hands of a leadership team that kind of treat it like a recipe and apply it uniquely. And, uh, I, I, uh, and it, um, they're supported by these what I call four levers and sort of three phases that I think you go through. So 
that's the that's the framework and the basis by which I think about it and in introducing it and practicing it here in Norquest, but also other institutions that I've been part of. Thank you. So just to, so I understand this, it's an approach that you take to from a mentoring perspective to the leaders, or is it a process? Or we say gather everybody and say, hey, this is a process. Let's talk about that process. Yeah, is I that- can introduce it as a framework and a process. So, for example. Um, here at Norquest, uh, we introduced uh, these 10 elements to uh, a, a set of culture champions. We introduced uh, or recruited and selected 25 culture champions. And when we asked them to start to think about helping us on our journey to drive and build an extraordinary adaptive culture here at Norquest, it's already got a good culture, but how would we make it extraordinary? I introduced these 10 elements as a framework, Jeff, to start to think about mm, how we yeah. might approach it. And so those 10 elements uh, come together as a system. They each live in their own sphere as important, but they uh, come together systemically to create momentum. So an example of one of the 10 elements is that the importance have, is of, of having an inspiring purpose. You have to really be clear about what your why is. That's just one. So my argument is that that one element is a necessary ingredient for any uh, culture to, you need to be intentional about it and to be extraordinary uh, and to be highly adaptive. Then there needs to be a personal emotional connection between every single person in an organization and that particular element of uh, the the why you exist, the purpose, your the mission, the mission, the mission, as yeah. it were, right? And those, that's not a particularly uh, breakthrough idea. Missions have been around forever; they'll always be there. But how you um, make that uh, capture the soul of an institution, and how you connect every single person into that mission, into that why, that is. Um, that is part art, part science. And so that's just one element of uh, these 10 elements. And, um, and then I think you go through some natural phases that um, in an iterative ongoing way, you're never done on your journey around, but I, I think you need to be intentional about it. So one phase one for me, for example, is how do you sort of ignite and listen uh, when you really want to start on the journey in a more intentional kind of way. And then you go through kind of a discovery kind of a phase, and then eventually you start to go into more of a truly adopting, adapting phase. And then you do it all over again. And the levers that uh, and I th- you think need to be intentional about um, uh, levers, authentic levers that you use, and by and large your re- recognition and reward system and your engagement system, your information methodology in your leadership system. So there needs to be an approach and a methodology to uh, being intentional about culture. Otherwise, it ends up being simply uh, just there. It's either a mistake or unintentional. And I think then it really, everybody has a culture, but you don't uh, really uh, leverage it when you're not intentional about it. Yeah, because I, th- I think that's a really, really good point to take out of, of you know of what we just talked about is that um, the culture of an organization, a company, of whatever it is, that that really sets its own its path for its future. So if you've got an environment where it's not working properly, people aren't functioning properly. Uh, from a leadership perspective, you really have to understand your. your if you if you don't have an understanding of your culture, 
you can't take that step to improve it because you don't understand the, the problems that you're facing. Yeah, you know, and and Ben Horowitz, who's uh, the founder of Andreessen Horowitz, next to Kleiner Perkins, maybe in the Valley, Silicon Valley, they're maybe the most esteemed venture capitalists. I mean, they do nothing but studying how do you how do you take and build great organizations in a sustainable kind of way. I mean, he just wrote a book called uh, "You um, You Are What You Do." It's all about culture, mm-hmm. and so the I think right now. Thoughtful leaders, and I, you know, and I'm, I'm just going to give a shout out to Jody. Now, the courage and the foresight to be intentional about culture, not to just—it's there. You're going to have it. You're either going to leverage it and continue to use it as um, a fundamental part of your operating system. You're going to, or you're going to let it just be, and it'll be there. But you won't—you won't be able to uh, benefit unless it happens more unintentionally or by accident. So we all have cultures. And so let's be clear about what it is and what we do about it and then how do we accelerate it. Yeah, exactly. The more you can understand your own culture. Mm -hmm. Lauren, going back to purpose, um, oftentimes there's conversation around who sets the purpose. So is the purpose um, a top-down established uh, concept? Is it a bottom-up should it be somewhere in the middle? Because lots of times you go into an organization, a new leader comes in, and they think it's their sole job, only their job, yeah. uh, to set the purpose of the organization. So what are your thoughts on that? Because I'm watching the work that you're doing on culture, yeah. um, and I have a perspective on this, but I've heard I've heard different views. You know, it's kind of all of the above. Uh, what... Um, you know, when a founder starts out with a, a particular business, oftentimes, or an organization of any kind, that purpose is deeply rooted in the spirit of that founder or co-founder, right? I mean, they just absolutely passionate, obsessively have a why. And they use that and they rally around that. And then oftentimes, um, as that organization tries to scale and it evolves, the um, that rich kind of texture that the founders put on it starts to get, um, uh, it evolves. And so you have to go back and say, is this is what our, you know, is this still our why? Is this why we really exist? And so it is not, it, there may be a democratic process or a lot of people involved in helping to, uh, to contribute to shaping it or to, um, bringing texture to it, but at the end of the day, your leadership has to declare it and has to be passionately kind of convincing in, um, in, uh, in having people understand that this is our why. This is why we exist. And, and, you know, that's been one of the things, Jody, you've asked us to do here around there's a history of this, of this organization, Norquest. It's evolved. And so now is a good time as we've gone through around, let's recheck into the why. Why do we really exist? And there's something when you really tap into it, well, you're almost tapping into the soul, a vein of gold that really makes this distinctly different. It's not Nate, it's not Grant McEwen, it's not any other post-secondary institution. There are 26 of them, Alberta. It becomes uniquely Norquist. And that why then becomes 
the the magic is when you can tap into the thousand people and the eighteen thousand students that make it up that get it. That is our why. Well, and one thing I I always worry about with purpose is you can have a leader that is enthusiastic, passionate, can tell the story of the why and the purpose. And then somehow that gets translated into something on paper. And then as you move through the leadership levels of the organization, and I've heard this before where someone has said, you know, when you talk about the purpose, um, you're excited, I'm excited. And then when you look at what's written on the page and the next leader, maybe a layer or two layers down or sideways in the organization, they talk to what's on the paper rather than um, what comes from within them. And then I find what happens is the story gets flat. And so how do you, how do you end this work? Because to me, um, I, I believe the culture is how we all behave, how we do what we say we're going to do, how we fulfill our commitments, how we make one another accountable. But how do you translate that when you're in a huge organization? So with the Canadian Forces, it's oh, yeah. a huge organization. We, we have a huge problem with that because right? often, you know, strong, secure, and engaged is our defense policy, and it lays out some big, lofty paragraphs. And the problem is when you read through those paragraphs, each person will take on a different tact of what that paragraph says. And by the time if you, you know, had 10 people in front of you ask them, well, what, what's the real point of this? they're all going to come up with a different point. And so I've always been a believer that that, you know, that mission statement, that has to be something that's logical, it's simple, it's something that you can visualize, and it, it isn't wordy. If you're, you've got a whole bunch of ands and commas and semicolons, you, you know, you've made that, that vision so complex that they'll have difficulty retaining it. You know, the, um, uh, the part that I think there's some confusion on that uh, ends up kind of making it a little bit more messy than maybe it needs to be uh, is that, there's this combination of this, these deeply held values and the, the why and then kind of the aspirational vision, as it were. And they're related, but they're all, they're all different. What really, I think, makes the story come off the walls and between the walls or the purpose or the values are the stories that you tell. Mm -hmm. And so one of the ways that I've noticed that the stories get told here at Norquist, for example, is on convocation or graduation day. The stories of what we do to help uh, a learner transform their life, uh, to go from someplace that, that was the, when they started to when they ended, that journey starts to inform what Narquist is about, its sole purpose. And when those stories get told and they have a, collect, a collectiveness to them, then they really start to shape and people start to say, I get it. And it's the same with, with values. You know, um, last organization I was at, the CEO, and when I was in the chief people officer, and then I had another role called chief evangelist. But all that we did with new hires, we'd bring them together once a month, 70 or 80 of them, and all we would talk about is our story, our purpose, and our values. And we didn't talk about strategy. We didn't talk about financial metrics, it was a financial institution, we talked about, this is why we're here, this is why you're here, and this is how you make the story more true. Now tell us how you connect with it, and here are the values, and let's tell story, and we tell stories to make those values true. Otherwise, they, they, whether, they're, 
whether it's a, it's a lot of paragraphs or just a few sentences or just one word or many, it becomes hollow when you don't make the personal emotional connection uh, with people. And I, I think the stories, in my experience at Norquest, I always remember when I started at um, my installation. I, before installation, I went and met with six students. I said, I want to talk to six students because I want to hear their stories. And I remember listening to them going, holy, like I can't imagine where they've been, the challenges they've had, and where they have come to. And I learned in that, that we can all tell stories from the student, from the learner, from the corporation that we're helping. But we actually need every one of our employees to have their own story that they connect to, because then it's it's something that's meaningful. It has passion. And, you know, I remember um, when Michael was sick at one point in time, and I tell this story often, is, you know, it was, it was probably now four years ago, something like that, where I had heard hundreds of student stories. I have the privilege of meeting with our learners, seeing the impact that we're having. But he was served by Norquest graduates. Right. And at the bedside, at a very vulnerable, vulnerable time, in a very caring way. And that, for me, was something, it became very personal. And it was like, oh my God, I so get our purpose. Before it was purpose for a great organization doing great work, but it didn't have this this something deep, deep, right. deep in me. Right. And so for me, when, when we have a purpose written on paper, how do we kind of infiltrate, and you use the word, word ignite, which I love, how do we ignite each employee in an organization, each soldier finding their story that they can have a personal connection with? Because honestly, I didn't know that I would ever truly be personally impacted by a Norquest graduate. Yeah. Because you, you never know, if you will, like it might be somebody who's serving you behind a counter and you wouldn't even think, oh, they're a Norquest graduate. But how do we as leaders, how do we get people to seek that out so that they can really be anchored yeah. in that purpose. So one of the things around that that's so important around um, as people come out to an organization, I want to talk about the people that are new hires, and then I want to talk about incumbents. That applies to everybody. But if you're a new hire that you're coming on, the mindset has to be that you're not coming into a transaction. You're not coming into a job. You're coming in to make the purpose more true, and that has to be an intentional conversation. Otherwise, someone just comes in, and does a does a job. I remember when I was at this other institution. One of my first um, um, formal uh, activities was to go to our, our orientation program. I was sitting with a bunch of new hires, and I asked uh, a number of them. They were at a table, kind of like this, about five of them, why they were here, and one of them said, "Well, my mother wanted me out of the house." So can you imagine someone to come work for your organization whose primary reason was my mother wanted me out of the house and I wanted to take a job? Wow. You can't, you can't make an organization great when someone just – they. The, so there needs to be an intentional mindset. I am here 
and I'm and I the moment that I walk in the door, that I'm a storyteller, I'm a story creator. I create stories. I just don't tell them. I create them. And so, if you have a thousand here at Norquist uh, story creators, then that's a very powerful thing. And every day you get an opportunity to create that story every single day. And people forget that they start to get trapped in a transactional job, but that doesn't make a culture or an organization great. So, Jeff, in this regard, how do, how in the Canadian military do you make your story and your purpose come alive? Well, I, I was just thinking how I was going to approach the question on this, because one of the things I've known in my, you know, I've been in for a long time, 34 years now, and we've gone through a couple of cycles where we had highs and lows where I, I can think of two occasions in our in, in the armed forces and the army, particularly, where we had to stop and basically say, "Hey, we have to reset our culture. We have we have gone away from where we need to be. We need to re-examine our ethos and our value system and what is important." And we had, unfortunately, and that's unfortunate with the armed forces, we tend to have an extremist event that is the catalyst for change. It's not peacetime doesn't bring change. Wartime brings change to the armed forces, and we've had incidents where we had to sit back and go wow, how did we get there that that officer made that decision or that soldier right. made that decision? And right. I've been deployed in Somalia, Afghanistan, Bosnia, and there were incidents where we all sat around and said, how did we get here? How did this happen? Right. And then you sit back and realize that there are, there are cultural factors that you can control and there's some that are above you, but that doesn't mean that you just let it slide if those, those types of culture issues. And that was a takeaway for me I looked at myself in Somalia when I was there, and I saw warning signs, and I saw things. And I knew because of my ethics and morals that my, you know, my parents and my, my training at that point had, had given to me, I realized there was a problem. But I also recognize now I didn't have the tools as a leader to do anything about it because I only recognized that there was something wrong. And it wasn't years later, either be experience or, or, you know, or training, that I developed a skill set, and I know a lot of my peers did as well, where we said, well, that's wrong, and we have to fix this. And culturally, I think we went through a, a couple of cycles where we basically were doing it. But the best thing that happened to us is that we sat down and we went through a period for about five years where we talked about ethics and morals and what are our values. And we recognized that in order to save money, we had been taking away training, at basic training for recruits, on ethics and morals. Because in the past... You could rely on church, community, family, had given right. people ethics and morals. But what ended up happening was they're coming now, and they're not necessarily receiving that because of our culture uh, as Canada as a whole. And we said, hey, you know what? We have to insert that. So we actually went in the opposite instead of being fiscally conservative and saying we're going to cut the training down and do more. We said, no, no, we got to add more. And that training needs to be delivered by an officer. And there has to be someone there who can present that image. It's not just a, all right, everybody, let's talk about the ethics and morals of our organization. It has to be presented passionately. Like, guys, this is important. This is what we do. This is the laws of armed conflict. This is how we do business. We will not deviate from this ever. We are the good guys. We wear the white Stetson. We never take it off. You have to understand that. And often when you're having a debate with somebody about, you know, ethics in, in combat, uh, I always found it really fascinating that some people would say, you don't understand. You can never take off the white Stetson. You can never change. Once you go down that road, you've, you've changed your, your culture forever if you're the bad guy. Yeah. And, and I found that utterly fascinating for myself to look at those times as it went along to understand that all those issues, those huge negatively uh, influencing activities – were because our culture had degraded because no one recognized the culture. No one recognized that we needed to address it and didn't see the warning signs. 
What I like about Northwest College here is that the image and the how we've been presenting the values. I mean, this is like forty years, I think, for me now. I have seen this growth, and I have seen the thing. And I, and I, you know, Jody and I always talk about when I first came here. I would go sit down in the cafeteria. No one would sit around me. Everybody would stare at me. Now I just do it all the time, just so people come and talk and say anything. And and that was because we had said, hey, you know, having the armed forces here isn't a bad thing. It's a good thing. Right. You should get to know them. Go talk to people and stuff. And that ability to sort of look at culture, I you know, I attribute that to Jody and sort of say, hey, let's 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 have the armed forces here and not be afraid. Right. Of I mean, that's a statement. That's a cultural statement in its own. You know, the medium is the message kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. Exactly. Talk about being yeah. inclusive. So obviously, having you be able to come up here in fatigues and to be here and to be visible and to be part of it is part of who we are. It's we are an inclusive. We want to make everybody here feel like this place was made just for them. That's what belonging is. One of the things that I think leaders have lost their way on is they forget that every day, every day is a learning moment. Every day fills yeah. you with huge opportunity. And it's telling the stories that says, yes, we that's us. That's who we are. It's also telling the stories when you knock, you need the... The uh, rice bowl gets uh, rice bowl gets knocked over, and you and you have to you know you go and have the courage to have those stories. And, you know, one of the stories that we back the financial institution of one of the really when we talk about you know um, we talked about an example of a in northern Alberta where uh, somebody wanted to buy a house and didn't have any money for a down payment, but had two used combines. And so the person selling the house said, I'll take those two used combines for collateral. And so our credit department made that happen. That was an example of really making banking really work wow. for people, right? Yeah. And that story, that was kind of the reaction you get. But then you need to tell the story about the time that someone comes into a branch with two little kids and the, the person who's at the receiving that person gets flustered or whatever and says to the person, we're too busy right now to, to, to have you, so please come back next Thursday and don't bring your kids. Yeah. That also that's is a message. story. That's right. an important yeah, that's story. Right. And you have to talk about both of them and openly have the courage to talk about them because, you know, sometimes we became af- we become afraid to tell people that this is not the way we want. We want to be positive all the time. We do, generally. We also have to give examples of people when, when we've done it in a way that's not acceptable to us. We won't do it that way. And, and um, as long as we get out, out of the world to blame, you know, because it's when people mm-hmm. start to blame so one of the one of these ten elements that I talk about that is crucial is acute listening. You have to be like massively acute listening and different in ways we've done before. The end that I put with that, the, the sort of the uh, the combination is that you have to talk back. You have to have be yeah. courageous enough, and the organization needs to open so that people can talk back because otherwise, you know, people sit on on the truth and a silent organization that way is a dangerous organization. That's how bad stuff really happens. Yeah, what well, we do now, we do uh, it's something that we only instituted maybe ten years ago was we do after action reviews, and it's not to lay blame. You just say what went well, what didn't exactly. go well, and you yeah. ask everybody. And when we first started it, people were very reserved. They wouldn't really say, "Hey, that attack went well. That was great. Everything went perfect." And then as this culture got in, we said, no, no, we want to self-examine what what went well, what didn't, what can we fix, what can be improved on. And instead of just saying the three leaders, they they would basically ask everybody, hey, what, what went well, what didn't go well. 
And now it's to the point where that's a standard drill, you know, and, and if you, you did something wrong, yeah, yeah, I failed to do this and that caused this. And anyway, goes, right, got it. Okay, let's learn from it. Let's move on. Yeah, the end with that, Jeff, and what, what I think is so important about that, one of the other elements that I talk about, and, and I won't try and cover all 10 of them, but I think they'll show up here, is psychological safety, which is Amy Edmondson, her work at Harvard. It's getting a lot of attention, and I think, it, and we need just to be mindful, though, of the fact that the people that set the example for that are leaders. And mm-hmm. so I was reminded that Pixar is one of the most successful organizations out there. And they, and someone told me this story, could you imagine being a, go to a production meeting and say, hey, I got a great idea. I want to create a movie, a, a cartoon, or, or a movie about a rat that's a cook. You know? <laughs> so, you know <laughs> are you kidding yeah, me? Yeah, exactly. Right? Are you kidding me? Yeah. But the end with that, the end with that is that is an environment where people could throw those kind of ideas around. And the way that was one of the ways that the CEO set that up is that he would start every one of his meetings in the case it happened to be a he and talk about his failures. Because in that world, you need to be able to throw those ideas out there. You need to have it. And so I think it's hard for us as leaders because we, you know, we get, we, you know, we, we, it's hard for us to, the, the, I think, though, that leaders that can say, hey, here's some things that I would love, I could have done differently. I start with myself. I am the change. I am the transformation. O- I am the culture. Yeah, we talked about I'm ownership owner, a yeah. number of times in our podcast. And you got to own the problem because once you then, then the paths start opening up when you say, okay, well, clearly I didn't train you well enough to, to do that. That's my fault. That's not your fault. I didn't do my piece. That didn't happen the way it was. Hey, that, that's my fault. I should have coached you, mentored you, been with you, or... You know, I think that's one of the key aspects that we put in the armed forces is that you got to own the problem and and recognize it's not someone else's fault. If you're the guy on top and guy or gal on top and you're making the big bucks and the big decisions, I mean, there's a consequence to that, which means you have to own the problems and look for the solutions and work with people. And I really like how you said about about listening, being active listening. A lot of times when you make a mistake as a leader. the best advice you get to people is that that feedback you get from someone who's trusted to say, well, maybe you shouldn't have done it that way. This is, you know, here's other options. Or maybe, you know, Joe over there had a really good idea, but you missed it completely because you, you had your vision, but you weren't listening to the feedback from the guy who physically assembles that part or physically does that part because you, you got so focused on the, the end state, you didn't bother listening to what they had to say. You know, in some ways, so interesting about all this is that leadership is kind of a paradox, right? It's sort of a the irony is, is that the higher you go, uh, the less, the more you actually ask for feedback, yeah. then you give feedback. You know, and it's because, you, you know, young leaders in particular, they'll often say, "Oh man, it's so cool! I get to be give people feedback now." When really, <laughs> yeah. when really, what sets the tone and the foundation is when you start asking for it. How might I be better? How could I help you more? How might I do that? And also, of course, there are good opportunities there too. Um, and Jody, you've been a good coach for me since uh, I've been here a couple times. And you said, you know, I, you know, you know, it'd been easier to let some stuff go. And you've pointed some things out to me, and, and I've really appreciated that. You know, because you want that. You have to have someone who has the courage to say, you know, I might have not. You know, have you considered? You, yeah, you know, I think you said, have you considered writing it a different way or saying it a different way? And that that's very helpful. And when you start developing that relationship with each other, when the leader is okay to say, how might I get better? It gives you a room and a pathway to go and say, well, if my leader can ask for that, then we can really get into the more gritty stuff that really gets us to be extraordinary. And that's friggin' hard. It's easier to kind of just, you know, and, you know, passively. And then sometimes with Canadians, when we have that thing about, you know, we say please and thank you to an ATM, right? I mean, (laughs) you know, we we don't want to have sometime have those more 
respectful, difficult conversations, and I think we need to. And that's an that's an indicator that your culture is really starting to move to a different level. Yeah. Well, see, I love it. I, you know, my best time of being a commanding officer of a regiment was I had a regimental sergeant major, and he had no problem telling me if I had done something wrong because we had that trust relationship. He's the, the senior NCO, non-commissioned. He's the senior guy. And he takes all their voices and concerns, and he'll come and say, hey, sir, I've got to close the door and talk about something, and would give it to me, hey, this is what's going on. We need to fix this. This is an issue. Or you may have thought you said this. This is what the troops heard. And uh, I thought that was exceptional, uh, a, a unique tool that when you have that relationship with, with your regimental sergeant major, you can really get into details right. about things that you probably wouldn't have when I was a major, when I was commanding a company. I still had a sergeant major, but it was the same to the degree where he would come in and he could, he could ask me to close the door and, and have a conversation about anything. There was nothing that we couldn't talk about. You know, those so, are the those are the relationships you want uh, that you want. Those are the people that you want around you that, that, that can tell you that because – I mean, our, trust me, there are days, though, I wish I went home and go, where the hell's good command and control is? I sure like to have a little <laughs> more of that, of that back. But, but you really, it, it, you really, you were going to say something. Jared. Well, I was, I was going to say, when you have, if you're a new leader, so let's say you work in the office of the registrar, you work at, in the base level, I don't know your lingo still, but you're b- the base level, you have your frontline soldiers and you've got your first level supervisor. What do you right. call that? Well, uh, yeah. let's just go with your analogy okay. and I'll try to find an equivalent. So, <laughs> so sure let's say, going. you know, your frontline <laughs> soldiers and your office of the registrar are people who are working their butts off every day. They know what happens on the ground. And you're now, you've now been in that group and you are now the supervisor. So what you want to do is you, you want, you want to do your job well because you're excited about, I've been promoted into this new role, so you want to do that. Um, Ideally, most ideally, you want your team to trust you, and you want to trust your team. And I have the belief that, can we not just start from trust rather than start from suspicion? But how do you, as a new leader, get comfortable enough to, in giving direction in a way that isn't, you will do this and you will do this, but encouraging and open, but also being open to hearing the feedback yeah, because that sounds what, really much like mission command. Well, it but does. what? Yeah, and maybe it, it is it, because it is, what it, happens is you you get there and you don't want to screw up because you're proud to be in this new role, but you also uh, you know you you also want to have some control and make sure you do it well. Yeah, so mission, mission, go command, with mission it, command. Yeah, because mission command is like it's always been my command philosophy, and and I it, it there's, you know, you always have people in the, in the academic side or have these theories about leadership style and everything else, and the, you know our current sort of pervasive one is that because of the type of battle environments that we're in, you can't micromanage every part of the battle space. You have to give people the ability to operate in their best intentions, and you know one of the key elements of there's sort of six elements of it. You know, the first one is, uh, you know, a, a clear commander's intent. This is what we're going to do. Right. What, you know, what the goal is, not how we're going to do it. And that's, you know, that's always sort of the first pinnacle. And then you build cohesive teams through mutual trust. And that's that's probably the hardest one. We're basically, uh, and I've used the example before, where I had an officer who he would constantly come in and tell me, this is what I'm doing, this is what I'm doing. I was like, okay, you know what I want, right? Yep. Are you getting there? Yes. Okay, well, you don't have to come every five minutes and brief me. I trust you. You know, carry on. Just you come to me at the points I said to you, and then 
a shared understanding is another element of it where you look at shared understanding where everybody has the same understanding of the terms of use the situation what's going on and there's you know there's lots of different methods you can do that through group meetings and there's there's ways of doing it and then you have to allow your subordinates to exercise initiative they they can't come to you to say can i do this or this it's like does it fit the intent yes then go ahead you like you don't have to come and right. see me just go ahead and you as a leader only have to really create a box for them to play in and they can do every their jobs inside that it's only when they're going to step out of those bounds and then the orders or directions that you give in are mission orders, which is what I want you to do, not how I want you to do it. So the person is free to figure out how to get to A and B, and it might be a very convoluted path to you, or it might be something very simple. And then you have to allow risk, and that's that's probably the hardest one for leaders, is that you have to accept some degree of risk, because if you're going to let people work on their own initiative and to do all that stuff, you have to accept risk. So in the Army, you know, we talk about a mission command philosophy. That's what it is. And in the, the presentation I did, did that Jody attended, we talked about in history, we may have not called it that, but there were military operations where at the end of the day, a whole bunch of people were told to attack something um, in Arnhem. And uh, there was only one guy who was a very junior guy, but knew exactly what the big picture was, had a shared understanding of the overall operation, and was able to conduct the attack successfully, even though the hierarchy that right. normally would have been there to lead them through it wasn't there. It was down to like sort of the two-thirds level. And they were able to succeed because they what we call mission command today. And I'm, I'm very passionate about that because I find as a unit, when I empowered my NCOs, my officers and stuff to get the things done, Everybody was happier because they were able to solve the problems themselves, not have, you know, the superimposed or being micromanaged. And it's at times, if it didn't come out the way it was, I had to go, hey, that was my fault. I clearly didn't get enough guidance or I didn't put them in the right direction or I gave them enough resources and bring them back in, reset and go back out again. And then over time, the culture that you create there is that you can be very adaptive. You can move very rapidly right. to deal with situations. And that's why I'm such a huge fan of Mission Command. Because I off the stuff you're saying, I'm, I'm saying that's Mission Command, that's Mission Command. Yeah, and, I'm, and I'm hearing you and I'm saying the same kind of thing. And, and I'm loving what I'm hearing about it. And we spent this last I – I had the luxury to be able to invest one whole year in studying. We made the declaration uh, that people had a right to great leaders. Leader and leaders had a responsibility to be great and not perfect. But once we made that statement, we had to declare, what does it mean to be great here? And essentially, the things you described in Mission Command were all the elements. We did all the research and everything, and essentially it comes down to that. I guess the nuance is that, is that um, it's a practice. You have to practice. You have to think about leadership and, and command as a privilege and a practice. And it's not like... You're just given a promotion in one day that, you know, you know all that. It's an active, continual practice. Jody used the example. on. It's often hard for new leaders when they come in because they've gone from collegial to now in a position of responsibility. But often they feel like they need to exercise that through the position they're given rather than through, you know, really. Positional in, authority. Exa- yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it, you know, That never works. It never works. Yeah. Exactly. And, and so, but. What happens if they're clever enough to say, let's build a team charter here around, you know, how might we and how might I really be a great leader for you? In fact, I've come out of your ranks and, and, and people want to contribute to that, to be part of that. And then I think, um, and all the elements that you talked about in Mission Command, what's most gratifying 
is when we make a contribution and we work with other people. Absolutely. Yeah. And we go and get something done and we give each other high fives at the end of that. What's the be- that's the best feeling in the world. Right? Well, and it's, it's interesting, Lauren, as, we, as you take someone from a frontline role into a supervisory role, oftentimes you're promoted into those roles because you're collaborative, you have a good relationship with people, you get work done. I mean, that's typically when I'm looking for somebody, it's about, usually it's about attitude because usually competencies are, are competencies. Most people come, they get hired into an organization because they have some competencies. But sometimes where I think it goes wrong or maybe not goes wrong, but there's a, a blip or a g- glitch there is when you know, the words mission command to me are interesting because first of all, mission is purpose. Right. So it's really purpose command, right? Because mm-hmm. you've got a purpose, you've got a goal you're trying to achieve. And then when you put the word command in that, what I hear when Jeff talks about it is command is uh, support, um, direction giving when it needs to be there, but it's not controlled, right? I don't hear mission control. And I think when I first heard Jeff speak about this ages ago, I always thought mission command was, I'm going to tell you what to do. I'm going to control everything you need to do. But in the explanation that Jeff gave and you gave, I didn't hear the word control. What I heard is, we've got this purpose, we're trying to get to it. And we have moved somebody up the ranks in the organization, not because they're control freaks usually, (laughs) it's because of other things. So it's really, really important that we support, I think, that thinking that it's, okay, now because you've received a promotion, doesn't mean you have to be a different person. Um, it, you have more responsibility. You have to figure out how to get your team to go, to go in the direction we need to go. How you get there is however you get there. Um, but I think it's uh, incumbent on senior leaders in the organization, as well as frontline employees, to give the message of how do we support that leader to get where they need to go and use the tremendous gifts they already have. Because we've recognized those gifts that they're going to help us move up. So let's not flip to the side of control. Yeah, and I think um, a lot of times, Jody, I'm not sure that organizations are are promoting on as you know by being as mindful about all these attributes. I think there's still a lot of promoting people because they have a particular competence or skill that. And of course, the irony is. You can't, when you go into a leadership position, you're not in a position to go and scale that same one skill. (laughs) You're you're nurturing and you become a gardener to see that uh, evolve. And that's why, you know, and I don't want to overuse sports analogies, but sometimes the greatest athletes aren't very good coaches. They don't have the ability to nurture and provide it because they mostly live through their own experience. And and um, that's not what we're asking out of leaders where sometimes they are enormously gifted in but that doesn't translate in being able to, to inspire and to invigorate into yeah. uh, uh, other groups as well. And it's, I, I think of my husband when he owned his advertising company. You know, he said early on, he said, my best salespeople, they're not the person to make the sales manager. Because what, and it, they might be, but they may not be. They like, don't not be. assume right. 
that they are because one, you, you might actually lose your best salesperson. So your revenues go in the tank and you may, you may have, they have this great competency for selling, 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 but do they have the competency to work with other right. people and all the rest of it? And I think we've all done it at some time in our career, uh, promoted the wrong person and not supported them to get where, where they needed to go. Yeah, and one of the emerging, um, I think, angles that we're starting to understand, and I think it's early days, is that today we need leaders to not only have these great attributes and, to the, and, and that uh, the kind of attributes and the capability that Jeff was talking about in Mission Command, the end is that we're looking for people that can see patterns and see, look at things systemically. That's a whole new kind of world that we're kind of opening up. You're not seeing much talk about that in literature, but you will, I think, in the not-too-distant future. Um, you have to see patterns. You have to see understand the whole system because connecting those dots and helping people see that and how they fit in the whole system is part of the gift of being an outstanding leader. Yeah, because I've always felt the detachment, your ability, it, it's something that was always taught to me. You have to, if you have a problem set, it's very hard to look from inside the problem set. You need to sort of step out and detach yourself from the problem so that you can see the entirety of the problem, not just the view from that center position. And there was an analogy that was brought to me from when I was a, a young officer in training that sometimes the problem, you might be the problem because you're viewing it from your perspective. But right. if you step out and say, Hey, maybe maybe that whole approach I've taken is actually the problem. But mm -hmm. unless you detach yourself from yourself and sort of look above, you know, and looking down at yourself and looking at the the holistically the whole problem set, it's really hard to come to a solution to try to find how you're going to solve that as a leader. You know, I, I had a chance to hang out with with uh, some of the people in Google, and there are a lot of things they do great, not so great. Um, but some of the things that they they do great from a leadership perspective is they believe that uh, the ability to change a perspective is worth a couple points of IQ. The idea that—that's good to know. <laughs> that 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 you that you that you when you have the, the the spiritual quotient, as it were, almost to recognize that your view is only one view, mm -hmm. and then you have the emotional maturity to, and quotient to look out and expand and say, you know, there are other views. And when I open myself to those other angles and views, then that is a real learning uh, possibility. And so, and the other thing, going back to your point, and one of the things I remember out of um, Peter Senge's book, The Fifth Discipline, which I think was an influential book for me, it's quite old now, but was that cause and effect are not closely related in space and time. And sometimes we get so close that we think that the, the cause is way down here, way out there, but we get so close to the symptom that we kind of are, we keep yeah, we rotating, don't we don't yeah. see it. We and see so... It. This ability to step back, look at angles in unique way, patterns, and see things systemically, and those are those are gifts that we're expecting that that come into the wisdom of higher order leaders that we that we need. We need this wisdom and judgment that go into um, this enormous ability to bring integrity and to create trust and. And that's how you become extraordinary when you kind of when you're you're particularly more. Your leaders that are allowed to kind of work at a higher level really bring those set of capabilities to an institution. So, Lauren, it's it's very interesting because we have worked a lot in the college on what we call an integrated organization. And when I think about an employee, a leader, uh, a contributor, looking at how do I work 
as part of an integrated organization versus in my own silo. What I often think of is that in my role, whatever it is, I'm actually connecting the dots from an organizational perspective on if I do this, how am I either impacting or contributing to something else? So when you talk about um, the, the broader perspective of considering data sets, when Jeff talks about kind of stepping out of the problem and looking from another perspective, to me that's the ability to really connect dots in a system. Do you think we can teach that? You know, um, that's a great point. Oh, yeah. it, uh, I would like if you know what, if the three of us can find a way to put that into a can and we can spray it out there, we're going to be like billionaires. Um, I think there is some teaching that comes out of it. And the end with that, though, I think, Jody, is that it's 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 having this conversation around um, what are the you know, being able to see outside of your nor- more narrow kind of thing. Like, for example, it. You see it often in control areas, right? I can control this. If I do this, I everything I need to have done will be done. Will be done. Yeah. But I screw up all kinds of other things. Oh, I can relate to that. We're, we're having that happen at work where they've changed one of the work processes for our headquarters. Uh, my day job, I'm a reservist, so I have a part. I'm, I do the army part time, and they decided to change a process. No understanding of the impact, and the result is they've tripled our administrative work that we have to do right. on the site. And we try to tell them that no, 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 no. It's this is going to be great, and we're like, no, you've fundamentally changed everything we do, and now you've created this problem. And I don't have enough funding. I don't have this and all that stuff, and they don't listen. And it's hopefully not listening on the this <laughs> but it, it is a problem when we brought it up that hey you got to understand that there's a cause and effect and you need to as a leader understand the effects when you make a decision make sure you've gauged those second and third order effects because sometimes that third order impact might be worse than the original problem itself and I and, think that's the teachable moment that Jody's talking about is that when people you want people to go about and have the autonomy to do some things. The end with that is that you've got to understand where your reach is impacting other people. Mm-hmm. And so because mm-hmm. you're going to solve something in the short run and you're going to create this wake-up problem and you're going to just move and shift something to somebody else. And and so those are the teachable moments that have to happen in conversation. What, what the, the challenge for, um, there's so many challenges for leaders, but one of them is that we get so busy by agenda and our schedules drive us so much the time to have those conversations and to think things through and to really talk about them. Often we kind of skip a few beats. And so a business case often won't do it. A business plan won't do it. The numbers will work. But we're missing is that conversation that allows us to go, now, have we thought about how this is going to, you know, that's hard to do, making space for that. Who else can do that? Who else has got, senior leaders have got to take the time to really do that. It's hard. And and that maybe is where the teaching can actually happen. Because when you actually talk through the connecting of the dots, because I, I can think fast and I can be here and move to there quite quickly. And then I'm like, okay, people, come on, come on, people. But the reality is I've... I've gone quickly there. So it's how do you stop and walk people through that? Because there is the opportunity to learn that. And I'm not, I'm not sure if it's fully teachable, the connecting of the dots. I think some people think as long as I've talked to Jeff or talked to you, Lauren, that 
that's an integrated organization. Yeah, we confuse Talking that. is not no. enough. No. It's yeah. understanding, understanding, and it's one thing touching the other that can cause this, this ping-pong effect. One right? of the insidious byproducts of well-intended collaboration are meetings. It's that I had a meeting, and therefore we're all integrated. <laughs> right. And, or I had a meeting, and something got done. Got, you know, and so we use that as a checklist to say, and it's not... It's kind of like, you know, I sent an email, therefore everybody understands. And that's the humbling part about this stuff. The yeah. humbling part about culture, the humbling part about leadership is that it's this relentless connecting these dots. It's this relentless, never-ending process of, um, you know, of making those patterns and so that everybody can see and mm -hmm. as many people can participate as possible in making it, your story true, your purpose true, living your values, and getting to those desired future state milestones that are exciting to celebrate. I'd like to ask to sort of change gears just a little bit here. One of the things that I always found was most influential in my career as I progressed was that I had at various stages various officers who said to me, you can call me anytime and I will provide you non-judgmental advice uh, that will go nowhere and it's just between you and I. And whenever you have a dilemma or a concern or whatever, um, you know, just pick up the phone. And it was always nice to have that. And I've always offered it to my young officers that, you know, here I give them a book, uh, a little handbook about a battle and some stories and I highlight some stuff. And I have a little card that has all my contact information. I say, you can call me anytime, day or night, if you have a dilemma and you need, you know, some advice. I'd really like to hear your thoughts on that because to me that was – Knowing that I had somebody, and I've only executed it once in my career, where I said, listen, I've got this dilemma. And that person at that time was a really senior person, a really high up in the organization. But he said, no, no, this is good. This is really good. Let's, let's, let's break this down. Let's talk about it. And for me, that relief that I had a leader, that there's somebody somewhere that when I get to that point where, you know, I have this dilemma, I have this person. And I've always felt that that was a very valuable tool as a leader, especially as a senior leader, to to, to you know, for me, give that book with my contact information. Call me anytime if you have an issue and you want non-judgmental advice. I, I think that's a huge and important statement for leaders to make and to be as deeply sincere about it because those calls oftentimes don't come at convenient times. Yeah, two in the morning. So it's not like, you know, don't call me when it's convenient. Call me and I'm going to be there for you. The end that I would put with that is that one of the most – uh, inspiring and invigorating things that I think a leader can do is to call one of the people that works for them and ask for their advice. Yeah. You know, I'd say, you know, hey, I just, I'm sorting this through and I'd just love to know how you think about that. When when a leader does that and says that to you, that feels like it's a trust thing. It's empowering. A, it is. It's a very empowering and, you know, you don't always have to listen to those viewpoints either way. But this idea that we make ourselves open for that exchange is such a bridge that we we build. We and, know, and, and it can be very subtle too, because I, I gave, I was at a meeting and um, a very senior leader said, "Jeff, can I get your advice on something?" I said, "Yes," and he took his notebook out, took his pen, and was, "Okay," you know. And to me, that was yeah, what you know, wow, you know, wow. here's this senior guy, and he's ready to take notes for me. And, and I felt that that was a, a really just the symbolicness of that created a, um, a a degree of loyalty, and it created a degree of um, I felt empowered into that problem set that we were dealing with. I was engaged now 100% in that problem that we were trying to solve. And he was 
evidently very explicitly interested by his actions, right? And that's important. I think, Lauren, that tidbit, think about if you're a brand new supervisor. It's hard to do that. It's hard to go to your employees and do that. Let's say, you know, I'm in a new role. I've got six staff reporting to me, 20 staff. The first time I do that, I think the way in which you do it, it has to be genuine. Yeah. And you have to be ready as a new leader to say, I'm going to listen and I'm actually going to try to do something. But the win is massive because I guarantee you that the the employee you're talking to will say, hey, did you know that Jody actually asked me what I thought? How you empower that group and create a sense of trust and loyalty. Like to me, that is amazing. If a new leader takes a risk in doing it and you have to be prepared because you got to be prepared for what you might hear. Exactly. Um, and you might have to set the ground rules to begin with to say, you know, I, I really would value your advice on this. I don't know that I can act right. on it all right. um, because you want to set the expectation. But I think it sets up something very different for you as a leader as well. I think it creates this incredible um, positioning, not positioning in a negative way, but it puts you in a particular light that is very, very positive with your employees. But you then have an obligation to do something with it. Yeah, I can give you a really good example that, that stays with me this day. General Herlier, who used to be the chief of defense staff, when he was a regimental commander in, in Germany, I was a forward observer. And I was a lieutenant, just got promoted to captain, and I'm at orders. He's giving orders to the tank squadrons and all this stuff. And after a couple of sets of this, I said to him, sir, how do you how do you organize yourself? Like, you're always able to stay on top of it, and you just have this notebook, like, how do you do it? Now, he's not my CO. I'm not in his unit. He doesn't have to answer my question. He could say, I don't have time for you. Go away. But he said, all right, I um, just want to finish up here. Just stay here. And he spent an hour with me in the middle of this giant exercise of all this stuff going on. And that, that you know, that's always stuck to me to this day that here's this guy who there, he, his, vision, his yeah. vision already was the armed forces. It wasn't his unit or his squadron. It was this artillery officer from another unit who's attached to me right now, I'm going to spend an hour with him because I'm going to show him how I organize myself because someday down the road, he's going to apply that. And I always remember that as like a key fundamental development moment that for me, I knew where Hillier was going. And for me, it was a developmental thing. He doesn't probably even remember it. But you've remembered and you told that, tell that story now. I mean, how powerful that is. One hour lasts a lifetime and mm. sometime we you know sometime we forget I, I was listening to some uh, a research about this the other day it was quite stunning to me it was about because we're so uh, captured by these devices in front of us mm. and if you want to create conditions of that really kind of around availability and trust and and safety is when you're in the middle of that device and I, this is a lesson for me because I don't do this as well as I should, and someone says to you, can I talk to you? The most important thing you can do is to put that device down and look at that person in, in the eye and say, absolutely. Uh, or even if you've got something critical and you say, I see you, is it okay if we talk five minutes from now? 
But the idea of you just keep your eye on that device and you go, yeah, 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 I'll be right with you. Yeah, 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 you're saying. You're, you're not, not really important not to really me. Important. And parents do that with their little kids. Yeah. We do that with each other and we forget it's those little, little, but vitally important things that say you really are important yeah. to me. And I, I see the same thing in meetings, um, and it's an interesting dilemma now in meetings because many people don't bring their paper, they bring their tablet. And I can always remember being at um, a, a business retreat that we were at, and um, one of our employees had um, the tablet up, and that was fine. We were having an engaging conversation. Everybody was talking. And I actually thought she was taking notes. And I gave the benefit of doubt. She was reading the newspaper. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was so disrespectful to the conversation. And so I actually think we need to bring some etiquette back into, okay, phones in the middle of the table. Um, I understand if there's an emergency okay, fine, you're going to deal with it. But I think we lose that human-to-human time. And, you know, there's, there, it used to always be, let's teach you how to, how to multitask. Well, now there's research that says multitasking is not efficient or very effective because you're too distracted. So it's a little bit of, you know, we learn something, and now we've, we, we're sliding backwards a little bit, and we need to do some self-correcting. You know, right? I, I, I'm going to ask uh, if we have any Korean listeners out there to forgive me because I'm not going to do this justice. But I just read this New York Sunday Times about nunchi, which is a, a Korean uh, word for being able to read the room and how quickly you can. So the, the challenge with multitasking is that not only are you not listening really you're doing two things or three things at one time but you're missing the room uh-huh yeah. it's not just what that person's saying is how's you know somebody reacting what's jeff thinking or what's somebody else thinking how is that and yet this idea to quickly read the room that is uh that's a, that's vital and we need to honor that so I think we're getting to our time. I've read the room because we actually had a, a time uh, uh, piece come up. What, but I think it's actually a great place to land because I think leadership in challenging times, we talked about connecting the dots. Mm-hmm. And part of connecting the dots is reading the room. It's looking at the faces. It's checking in, are, are people okay? Um, and, and it's also sometimes saying, I screwed up. And the best lessons that can, can come for that, for, for, from that for everyone in the organization. Yeah. You know, I just, if, I, if you don't mind, as we kind of wrap up, and I want to, first of all, thank Jeff, you, and Jody for having me here. The one thing I do want to uh, say, Jody, is that, um, you know, you've uh, built a great culture here at Norquest, and you've got this good 10 years of, of legacy that you've built. And I just want to compliment you for having the courage to identify that you want it not only to be great but extraordinary and that you've committed yeah, not strategic resources to it. You've committed um, your uh, belief behind it. And, um, yeah, it's been a privilege to watch you kind of pave the way to make that happen. And I think um, I'm expecting that it's going to continue. And, um, Jeff, thank you very much. It's um, I'm, I'm loving what... Um, 
Mission Command. Yeah, I'm right. I with have a you. book for you. I'm All right. It. <laughs> Thank you. I'll take it. Thanks very yeah. much, both. Thanks, of you. thanks so much, Lauren, for being with us today. Yeah, and thank you, and my compliments again to Jody. I mean, I think most people are aware that this is probably Jody's last one as she heads off, and uh, it's been a privilege for me. I've learned so much uh, here um, because there were things I never knew about things, and when the army, you tend to live in a sort of a, a homogeneous lifestyle. Everything's the same every day, and uh, this is probably one of the most uh, eye-opening. And uh, learning things for me. I've learned a ton from Jody as well. So it's great. Yeah. Thank you very much, everyone. Bye for now. Bye. You've been listening to Leadership in Challenging Times with Dr. Jody Abbott and Lieutenant Colonel J.C. Wilson on the Northwest College podcast. Any questions or suggestions on any episodes can be directed to us at podcast at norquest.ca. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please remember to subscribe using iTunes or Google Play and get updated when the new episodes become available. Thanks for listening.